We're allowed to do it. Well, we're here on the Statues and Stories with Adam Levinson. Adam, how are you today? We're doing Bill of Rights Part 3, correct? That is correct. Good evening, everybody. Go ahead. Fire away. I'm going to talk very little because I'm having microphone issues. So my mic is uh, sounding too low, we've been told. So I'm going to leave you with Ed. I'm going to just uh, cough every once in a while just to let me let you know that I'm here. But uh, have at it. All right, so let's uh, take a step back, and uh, I will apologize to you in advance, Manny, that uh, this is going to involve a lot of legal discussion tonight, but we're going to try to make it fun and interesting for everybody. Two attorneys making it fun and interesting oh, yeah. for everybody? Yeah. Oh, no. So sometimes legal discussion can turn people off, but tonight this is a legal discussion of the Bill of Rights, so this is the third part of our series <clears throat> talking about uh, the Bill of Rights, and uh, we've talked about another night's the Constitution, and the last two nights, or the last two shows, we talked about how um, our, the hero of the story of the Bill of Rights is James Madison, we talked about some of the background about the Bill of Rights, and what we're going to do now, when I disconnect my phone so I don't get any vibrations, we're going to uh, talk about, again, the Bill of Rights, but the, the third part of our conversation involves how did the Bill of Rights get applied to the states, because I think we left off last week discussing how, and we use the First Amendment as an example, but how does the First Amendment start? And the answer is it begins, the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights, that Congress shall make no law respecting, and there are five items in the First Amendment, the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise of religion. <clears throat> Everybody knows the First Amendment also says you can't abridge the freedom of the speech, you can't restrict the freedom of the press, or the right to peaceably assemble or to uh, seek redress of grievances. So that's the Bill of Rights. But it says Congress. Nowhere does it say the states. So this conversation now is going to talk about how over time has the Bill of Rights been applied to take these same protections and apply them to the states. And this concept is called the incorporation doctrine. And uh, so we're going to get into very heavy into the incorporation doctrine, which is about cases, which means Supreme Court cases that we'll be talking about tonight. So I want to begin, though, with some questions to give an overview of what we'll be talking about. And uh, hopefully we'll answer some of these questions during the evening. So the first question, which we won't answer yet, but just to give the, the lay of the land, is what is incorporation? Which amendments have been incorporated? And I'll give everyone the heads up that not all of the amendments in the Bill of Rights, and the Bill of Rights is 10 amendments, but uh, and some of them, as example, the First Amendment has five different components. So not all of the provisions, not all of the clauses of the Bill of Rights have been applied to the states. So we're going to talk about the theories of incorporation. We're going to also, if we have time, talk about the most famous footnote in U.S. Supreme Court history. And this is where I say to everyone where this is a little bit legalistic, but if we have time, we're going to get into the weeds of, of a particular Supreme Court decision. We're going to also answer the question, who is John Bingham? And I'm going to spell his name, John B-I-N-G-H-A-M. And when we talk about Alexander Hamilton as uh, sort of the founder of our modern economic system, many would argue, and we talk about um, Madison as the father of the Constitution, and Madison also, I've argued, and a lot of historians, I'm just listening to what they tell me, think that Madison, if he's the father of the Constitution, he is also the father of the Bill of Rights. So Madison is very important in constitutional history. But who is John Bingham? And the answer is he is the father of the 14th Amendment. And uh, to skip ahead, it is through the 14th Amendment of the Constitution that the Bill of Rights gets applied to the states. So we're going to talk about a little bit about John Bingham. And uh, Manny and Ed, every so often you hear names from other evenings that, that come across American history. And it's going to be very interesting when we talk about John Bingham and some of the other names that are going to come up tonight. Also, I want to talk about, and we'll save time at the end, give me my five-minute warning to talk about John Bingham. We also want to talk about the Northwest Ordinance <clears throat> and the Articles of Confederation, because that gives some background about the Bill of Rights, and it's very interesting when we get into the weeds on some of these other foundational documents, the Northwest Ordinance and the, the Articles of Confederation. So those are the top 
topics we're going to cover tonight, and uh, let's begin again by uh, referring to some of the topics from the last two weeks, part one and part two. And I want to mention, next time anyone is in Washington, D.C., in the rotunda to the National Archives, there is a room which is called the Charters of Freedom Room. And in the Charters of Freedom rotunda, and this is off of the mall, and this is where we have the three most important documents, in my opinion, and Ed, I'm wondering if you agree also. Uh, so here, let me ask, what are the three documents that are in the rotunda, which is referred to as the Charters of Freedom for American Government? The Declaration of Independence, the, Consti- yep. the Constitution, and the Gettysburg Address. Okay, the Gettysburg Address, I don't know if it's in there or not. That okay, may all right. The Bill of Rights. That's the one I wasn't sure about. Yep, so then that's, that's an interesting question, whether or not the Gettysburg Address, I would agree, is also very important, and that would be from the Civil War time frame. So the three documents that I'm mainly focusing on are the Bill of Rights, which is at the end of the Constitution, the Constitution itself, and the Declaration of Independence. Okay. The dates are the Declaration, everybody knows, is 1776, written by Thomas Jefferson. Then we had here a couple others working with him, Adams and um, Franklin. We also have the Constitution, which is written in that summer of 1787, with all the compromises to formulate the different plans, the Virginia plan, the New Jersey plan, the Connecticut plan that gave us the Constitution. It wasn't perfect, but over time, um, you know, we've, we've tried to perfect it. And, of course, the Bill of Rights is seven. Oh, so you're you're thinking of the Bill of Rights as a separate document. Right. That's, that's right. fine. So yeah. I say three documents. Okay. The Declaration of Independence, 1776, Constitution, 1787, Bill of Rights, and we talked about this last week, which was written by the first Congress, right. really Madison, who introduced it and, and uh, shepherded it through the process. And we talked about the anti-federalist last Got it. week. Yep. So th- these were the three foundational documents. Yep. And what I want to make the point today, <clears throat> excuse me, is that um, in the, the Declaration of Independence, everybody knows the words. We hold these truths to be self-evident. This is the very lofty language, the aspiration language from Thomas Jefferson that all men are created equal. It doesn't say women, and of course, when it said everyone's yeah, created equal, um, there were a lot of people who weren't being treated as equal, right. and obviously that's slaves and other groups. right? So Jefferson was very aspirational, uh, and the, the point I want to make is that the Constitution is a framework, 1787, for what the government would look like. But the Constitution doesn't directly connect to the Bill of Rights. I'm sorry, take that back. The Constitution doesn't directly connect to the Declaration of Independence. The purpose of the Declaration is to get independence from England and again, Jefferson raises a very high bar of what we're hoping to do, which is have equality and have uh, these natural rights that we talked about in the prior nights. Constitution is very practical, putting the formwork, the blueprint for government. And I think this is the argument I'm going to make tonight, that the Bill of Rights comes in, in, in some ways connects the Constitution to the Declaration of Independence. It takes the natural rights, these liberties, in the Declaration of Rights, the, the problems we had with England, right, and connects them into the Constitution. Yep. So that's why all these three documents go together, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So yep. let's, let's get back to where we were last week, again, building on our discussion. And I listened to us on the radio last night on the podcast, and I should mention that uh, listeners know you can listen to us live. You can go to the WSQF website. You can listen to the podcasts. You can also go well, to the Statutes and Stories website. And uh, one of these days, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, we're going to post the the, the the blog posts about some of these discussions and topics, and uh, the point is that I made a mistake the other night. I referred to the what's the Massachusetts Compromise. I referred to as the Maryland Compromise mm-hmm. last week. That was a slip of the tongue. So let me just repeat what the Massachusetts Compromise was when we had the Constitution adopted 1787, had to be ratified, and the ratification conventions are held in 1788. So the initial first five states ratified it pretty easily, but then you came up with a lot of opposition from the anti-federalists, including in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, Virginia, and New York, and the compromise that was reached in Massachusetts
Massachusetts was that Patrick Henry, by the way, these are very prominent anti-federalists that we talked about, <clears throat> and um, John Hancock. So a lot of the anti-federalists said that we want a Bill of Rights, and we give them credit for wanting a Bill of Rights for reasons we talked about the other nights. <clears throat> But here the point is that in Massachusetts the compromise was we will ratify the Constitution on the commitment and the promise that the Constitution will be eventually provided a Bill of Rights, and that's what Madison did in the first Congress, and he upheld that promise mm -hmm. to create a Bill of Rights, and that was after the Massachusetts legislature insisted on right. it, the Virginia legislature well, insisted on it, etc. So Adam, it was, Adam, I wanted to, could I, I wanted to add a comment, yes. which I think you made a very good point. Uh, first of all, the three documents are the Declaration, 1776, Constitution, 1787, Bill of Rights was finally approved, 1791. But I think you made a very good point saying that the Bill of Rights ties back to the Declaration. And in fact, one of the probably least significant amendments in the Bill of Rights, the Third Amendment says, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner. And that is one of the complaints, grievances, set forth in the Declaration of Independence. So right. even with a, with, a, with a not very often used amendment like that, it shows you that you made a good point. It does tie back to the Declaration of Independence and the grievances stated there. And we'll see a little bit more of that tonight. Maybe we'll make connections yep. between these three documents. So here, we'll bring another document, two more documents, into the conversation. They're not as important, but these are foundational documents. So the Articles of Confederation. So what is the Articles of Confederation? And the answer is that prior to the Constitution being written in 1787 and ratified in 1789, etc., and the first Congress takes effect in 1789, uh, so... Before the new Congress started, before the Constitution was written in 1787, the Articles of Confederation was the framework of holding the states together during the Revolutionary War and until 1788 timeframe, 1789 timeframe. That's, that's the Articles of Confederation, right? And interestingly, the Articles of Confederation did not have a Bill of Rights. So one of the arguments that Madison and Hamilton and a lot of the other founders from that convention, the Philadelphia Convention and Independence Hall, who opposed a Bill of Rights for reasons we talked about last week, and Ed, real quickly, what were some of the reasons why the founders opposed a Bill of Rights? Because it's counterintuitive. Why could they have opposed the Bill of Rights? Well, was, real quickly, what did we say last week? It was redundant. It was redundant. What was their concern? What were they worried well, about? Well, that if you pointed, if you laid out, enumerated the certain rights, that there would be in a, a presumption exclude, that the others, others, the others would be excluded, right? Or uh, but or but you have to draw a distinction between because the government created by the Articles of Incorporate of. Uh, uh, of federation was not as powerful as the government created by the Constitution. So there was more concern for having a Bill of Rights with the current federal government. You just answered a question I was about to ask you, so that was an excellent analysis. And that's Federalist 84, the Federalist Papers. Hamilton writes about how, in his opinion, it would have been dangerous to have a Bill of Rights for the reasons that you mentioned, that if you fail to mention all of your rights, are you going to lose them by implication if you don't list them? That was his concern. And then the solution, which Madison came up with, is going to be the Ninth Amendment that we'll talk about later. So here the question about the, and you've already answered it, about the Articles was, in the Federalist Papers and otherwise, Madison points out and Hamilton points out that 
that, you know, we don't need a Bill of Rights because the Articles of Confederation didn't have a Bill of Rights. So why are you all been out of shape, anti-federalists? If the Articles we've been working under with, you know, we've been working under the Articles from 17, this is the 17, late 1770s, all the way to 1787, so approximately 10 years, a little bit less, we didn't need a Bill of Rights under the Articles. So why are you jumping up and down, anti-federalists, causing all this controversy about a Bill of Rights? Because we didn't have a Bill of Rights under the Articles. So here I was going to ask you, um, why is that argument a little disingenuous? Because the new federal government is more powerful. Exactly. So that was the reason that the anti-federalists, and this is Mason and Patrick Henry, give me liberty, give me death, were very concerned that we were creating this new, stronger federal government to correct the deficiencies of the Articles. So that's why they wanted a Bill of Rights, to make sure that this new federal government doesn't get out of hand. So uh, this is more background we're building up to. Um, Now let's also talk about the Northwest Ordinance. And the Northwest Ordinance, and, and here it connects to the Articles, because under the Articles, and I just looked at my daughter's history book as I study with my kids, and uh, there are two acts from the time under the, it was called not just the Congress, it was called the Confederation Congress. So under the Articles of Confederation, the Congress was called the Confederation Congress. So there were two very important pieces of legislation that were adopted by the Confederation Congress in the 1780s. One was the Northwest Ordinance, and another was a land act, which had to do with dividing up and surveying, it's called the Ordinance of 1785. So the Northwest Ordinance dealt with and remember, after the Revolutionary War, we had 13 colonies which became states. But after that, that war ended, and the Treaty of Paris was 1783, we inherited a lot of new land. It was still occupied by the Native Americans, but uh, we now had all this land that stretched all the way to the uh, to the Ohio River and uh, arguably to the Mississippi River. And we talked about that in the uh, prior evenings with that Treaty of Paris. So we now have all this land that's under the, the control, if you will, of the new American United Colonies under the Articles. So what does the ordinance of 1787 do? And the quick answer is it provides a framework, and we could spend a whole evening talking about this very important piece of legislation, the Northwest Ordinance, but it provides that we're going to carve up that territory. And I went to school in Michigan, right? So Michigan was in that territory. It was the Northwest Territory, um, Illinois and Wisconsin and Minnesota. These are all areas that yep. are eventually going to become states. And that's what that ordinance of 1787 says, is that once you get enough people, I think it was 60,000 within a territory, they can then petition to join the United States, and they would come in on an equal footing. So the resident of uh, the future state of Michigan would be equal to a resident of New York or any of the other original 13 colonies. It also uh, prohibited slavery in the Northwest Territories. Excellent. And uh, that would later be unwound in the 1850s, but I completely agree with you. The Northwest Ordinance is very important because it established that these northern territories would be uh, free of slavery. And I think that also gives an indication that at least some of the founders were very opposed to slavery, because that's what they put that prohibition in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, which is what I'm building up to, the Northwest Ordinance, and I'm going to pull it out, and if anyone's reading online or able to go online, it isn't too hard to find these things. So look for the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. And interestingly, although the Articles of Confederation did not have a Bill of Rights, the Northwest Ordinance did list a bunch of rights. So I'm going to read some of them. So this is Article 1 of the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 provides as follows. And why are we talking about this? Because if we want to understand the American Bill of Rights, which was written by the first Congress in Madison, it makes sense to see where is he taking this from. And we talked about in prior evenings, he's taking this from the Virginia Bill of Rights. He's taking it from the inherited English law, which was, you know, from the Magna Carta in 
1215 and the, the English Bill of Rights in the 1780s. So, but there was also the Northwest Ordinance, which interestingly helped me connect the dots. The Northwest Ordinance is written in 1787. What else was written in 1787? Uh, the, the Constitution. No. So well, you're they're right. They're not very far apart from a time standpoint. You're right. Uh, so it's very interesting that they had, I'm going to read them, these Bill of Rights, if you will, although it wasn't called the Bill of Rights, but they enumerated a bunch of rights in the Northwest Ordinance, and then a couple months later, when they're meeting in Philadelphia, they exclude and do not have a Bill of Rights. So Did, was there them. much, wait, was, were there many of the same people in both the Confederation Congress and the Constitutional Convention? Many, but not all. Okay. So it's, it's, it's interesting to compare who these folks were. So the, the first provision, Article 1, says no person, and listen to the old language, no person demeaning himself in a peaceable and orderly manner shall ever be molested on account of his mode of worship or religious sentiments, mm -hmm. which basically means freedom of religion. You, you can't, as long as you're demeaning yourself in a peaceable manner, an orderly manner, then you can't be molested on account of your worship or religious sentiments. It continues, and, it, and this is, again, this is only for the Northwest Territory. It does not mm -hmm. apply to the states. Because not to say, uh, this in, in said territory, number two, the inhabitants of said territory shall always be entitled to the benefits of the writ of habeas corpus. Right? This is old English law, that yep. If you're arrested, you have the right to know what the charges are and to be presented before a judge. Mm -hmm. Continuing, it says you have the right to trial by jury. And this I would not consider a right, but this is nevertheless, they included it as a the right to proportionate representation of the people in the legislature. So that's not an individual right, but that's the right that everyone, the equal right to, to vote, and that your the vote shouldn't be diminished. So that's in the Northwest Ordinance. Continue to read. Because not to say that the judicial proceedings should be in accordance of the, the course of common law, which is a way of saying due process. Uh, I'll skip through some of it, but all fines shall be moderate, which today, in our when we go through the Bill of Rights, that's saying you can't have cruel and unusual punishment, and you can't have excessive penalties or fines. And it goes on to say, no cruel and unusual punishment. No man shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property, but by judgment of his peers. So a lot of these laws or these, these rights and these protections weren't invented by Madison. All he had to look at was the Northwest Ordinance from 1787. Mm -hmm. yep. So um, there's a lot of rights. And here it's going to create a little issue. And I'm going to sort of phrase it as a question. So the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, I already mentioned a little bit of it. But who does this apply to? This applies only where? North of the Ohio River, uh, going all the way to Mississippi and west of Pennsylvania. So this is in the Northwest Territory, right. and here's the problem, right? So when Michigan, or choose another area, yep. um, you know, Ohio, Ohio or Illinois, when these territories eventually become states, they lose the protections of the Northwest Ordinance. So. It's, it's an interesting conundrum. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the, the uh, before the Civil War. And one of the things I want to talk about later, if we have time, is uh, that one of the big problems with slavery, other than the fact that it was a horrible institution, was that the, 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 the result of that process, that institution of slavery, it corrupted not just the slavery institution, it corrupted democracy in the northern states. It was a very insidious, and I'll give examples, right? So in order to fight the abolitionists, the southern states were restricting freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is another reason why slavery was such a horrible, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, so what's my point? My point is that when we skip ahead to talk about John Bingham, who was a congressman uh, from the northwest area, uh, he made the observation, let me try to read it to you. Uh, so he presents this conundrum, which is, how is it possible 
his position because he was an abolitionist. He hated slavery, and he wanted to be able to read into the Constitution reasons why we should be able to outlaw slavery, that how can you reconcile slavery with the Constitution? How does the Constitution allow this? So his position was, I'm going to try to find it so I can read it to you, that uh, this can't be right, that uh, it doesn't make sense, that people could one day, when you're living in the territories, doesn't matter what territory, Michigan, Ohio, these areas haven't yet become states, that you have all these protections that we read through, and then overnight, once the area becomes a formal state, that you lose these protections. So that very much disturbed him. He didn't think it made sense to lose all these rights. What, what, year, what, what year did he uh, make this observation? All right, so he's making this observation, and he had a long career, and I'm going right. to maybe get ahead of my schedule, but let me give you some idea of what John Bingham covered, and this tells you how a lot of the players in history connect and their names come up. Right? And so the, the way he asked the question is, why should territorial legislatures, so the territorial, right. territorial legislature will become the state legislature, but why should the territorial legislature be bound by all of the Bill of Rights um, but not the states be bound by these rights under the Northwest Ordinance. So to him, it didn't make sense to immediately, at the stroke of midnight when, when a new state came in, to lose these rights, these rights and these liberties. Mm-hmm. And if, here's, let me ask you the question, uh, and then I'll give some more of his background. But what's the reason why uh, a lot of people were not concerned? Because once you become a state, although you lose the protection of the Northwest Ordinance, what in theory should the state do? They could have their own constitution. Right. So when you come in under the Constitution, then the states can do their own state protections. And remember, in this time frame, the Bill of Rights had not been incorporated. So let me just use another example, First Amendment. So Congress shall make no law restricting freedom of the press or religion, but states could do whatever they want. If a state, Connecticut, Massachusetts, wanted to create their own religion, they're not prevented from doing it by the Bill of Rights. And this is before the Civil War, and all of this will change when the Civil War is won by the North and we adopt the 14th Amendment. So John Bingham's position is he wanted all of the Bill of Rights to apply to the states, because if the Bill of Rights applied to the states, then that's a way of outlawing and fighting slavery. So that's his position. So let me tell you a little bit more about him, and then we'll talk to him about him at the end. But to give you some idea, because he asked, what is his background? He was a leading member of Congress and an abolitionist prior to the Civil War. During the Reconstruction, he leads Reconstruction. Uh, he was a JAG during the war, Judge Advocate General, and he was involved with uh, putting the John Wilkes Booth conspirators on trial after Nixon was assassinated. Also, you mean Lincoln? A very famous trial. No, not Nixon, Lincoln. So this is when when Wilkes Booth, when John Wilkes Booth was, was a, with a bunch of conspirators who had planned to assassinate Lincoln. Yeah, but you said he, Nixon. He was one of the prosecutors that prosecuted. I think there were five individuals. All right, good. <clears throat> but there's another important trial that happens after Lincoln. Uh, there's a new president after Lincoln, Lincoln's vice president. I don't want to give away too much. Yeah. Uh, something very important happens to the president who takes over after Lincoln. Lincoln Impeachment. Vice- Impeachment. So guess who was on the impeachment team that leads the trial against Andrew Johnson? A bunch of radical Republicans. No, John Bingham. John Bingham. In fact, John Bingham gives the closing argument in the Andrew Johnson impeachment trial. And they they got within one senator. They got within one senator of ousting uh, President Johnson. And what was his, what was the, uh, let the audience know, what was the the, the major uh, offense that Johnson committed? Okay, so I want everyone to go to the Statutes and Stories website. In fact, I should pull it up right now. And it had to do with some government appointments. Right, the, the way that... What, he sold that he was selling? No, no, no. It was just a disagreement between him and Congress on the government appointments. Right, most people what the hell is the high crime there? See these... Uh, he, was, he was uh, impeached because he was a Democrat. Tra- uh, 
and again, a bunch of radical Republicans were running the Congress, and he wanted to go soft on the South. He was a Democrat from a so state that seceded. The name of the act, and I invite everyone, go to the Statutes and Stories website or just Google the following, Tenure in Office Act of Tenure, 1867. Right. So that was the reason, because I posted about it, that was, the re- that was the formal reason why Congress was impeaching, but they did not convict him. It went down to one vote, and I talk about that on the website. Yep. So it was the Tenure in Office Act, and it had this had to yeah. do with once you are appointed, the president can't remove you under certain circumstances. and. Nevertheless, uh, Johnson fired people, and right. Congress is going after right. him for uh, for firing right. appointments by by Lincoln. Okay, but tenure of office. But you know, all, so every so er, political impeachment. Yeah, it was a political. It was political because Abe Lincoln wanted to reconcile the country. So as his first, he was not an abolitionist. He wanted to contain slavery. So his first vice president was an abolitionist from Maine, Hannibal Hamlin. But in the second term, his vice president was a union-supporting Democrat from a slave state. Andrew Johnson was a senator, Democrat senator from, uh, from Tennessee, but he, he opposed secession, like uh, Sam Houston in Texas. And so Lincoln, as part of his reconciliation, talked, you know, said, I want a guy who supported the union, but he was a Democrat from a seceding state. And that, when he was shot, then you got this guy who was, you know, very un-Republican, it became president. Now, all the radical Republicans in Congress were very upset by that because he was at odds with them for his whole term. Now, was he one of the appointed senators uh, during the No, no, no. He had been a senator before the war. He opposed secession. Uh, at, in Tennessee, Tennessee seceded. So Lincoln, as part of his reconciliation uh, policy, made him his uh, his vice president, and that's you know that's the way these things go. Yeah, there were several senators uh, that were appointed by the North because by, they by, refused yeah, they, to pass. They, they put, put him in there. Them. They named their own senators. Yeah, no, no, he was a senator from before. Uh, but well, Adam, one of the reasons I asked you is when did Bingham become prominent? Because before the Civil War and before the Republican Party was created, a lot of abolitionists, including William Lloyd Garrison, who was a leader, were against the Constitution. They, they burnt the Constitution. They said, this is a pact with the devil because it, um, it allows slavery. And then other people like Lincoln, like Frederick Douglass said, no, we can work with the Constitution, but we have to remember the ideals proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence. And that's what Lincoln goes to at, at the Gettysburg Address. And that's what Frederick Douglass came around to really supporting Lincoln, because Lincoln was not a, a, an abolitionist. He was kind of a contained slavery, not abolish it. So Bingham was kind of ahead of himself. Uh, Bingham... And I'm going to get into some of the details when we have five minutes left at the end about Bingham. I mean, you just threw out a lot, a lot out there, so let me respond yep. to some of it. Uh, so the quick observation, and you're both right, is that this was a big irony in American history that, that once Lincoln gets killed, the person who replaces him is basically a Southerner who is who is resisting what the North is trying to do right. uh, for Reconstruction. So things may have turned out a lot differently had we had a president who was in line with what Lincoln wanted to accomplish, which was to extirpate slavery and make everybody free and try to unravel that, that legacy of history, a legacy of slavery, uh, but you wind up getting a, a, a racist, and I'll be careful with my language. No, but- yeah. 
H.I.P. Johnson was a racist southerner, and uh, he's trying to obfuscate and to impede uh, the reconstruction that the North wanted to do. So it's a very interesting irony. He never opposed slavery, Johnson. He had never opposed, he opposed secession, but he never opposed slavery. So let me get back, and maybe we'll cover more of that when we go to the Bingham conversation. I agree with you that Bingham is ahead of his time because he wants to use, before the Civil War, he wants to make the incorporation argument that we're going to get to in our conversation today. So uh, more background. Uh, So we spent last week talking about Madison, right? And uh, I wanted to point out to you that Madison made a campaign pledge, and this is the background of the Bill of Rights. So originally he was um, opposed to a Bill of Rights, but then when he's trying to get the state of Virginia to adopt the, the Constitution, he, he basically realizes there's a lot of opposition, and after speaking to Jefferson through correspondence, he comes around, he has the campaign for office we talked about last week, and in campaigning, he makes a commitment. And if we have time, I'll talk about who he makes this commitment to and how he makes the commitment. And then Madison follows a man of his word. He, he ushers through a Bill of Rights through Congress. Right? And last week, we sort of left off talking about a case, which was the Gitlow case, and this was the a First Amendment case, and this is in the early 1900s, 1919. 1920 time frame. It gets decided it's somewhere around 1925. There was a Red Scare. There was a lot of concern about communism. And I'm going to connect the communism and the slavery uh, because concerns about um, you know an institution, that's that's a way that you get violation of rights. And I'm going to make that connection. But uh, the Gitlow case is a situation where New York had a law which made it illegal to engage in seditious kind of speech because they were worried about communists taking over the country. So the question was whether or not New York could pass a law which would make it illegal because Gitlow published... Is he in New York? No. This oh. is in New York, so Gitlow published... He was a member of the New York legislature at various times. We talked you about missed my joke, Adam. I'm sorry? You missed the joke. I'm sorry. I was interrupting you. I didn't hear you. will explain it to me. You want, you want to repeat it? <laughs> it was just... It was, uh, Law was trying to pass so that the communists would not be welcomed in New York, and you didn't get it. You know, because as applying to today, because you know, no, I believe no. the New York is Bolshevik as we speak. All right, go ahead. I am a native New Yorker in New York. uh, And I'm neutral, yes, I know. You make it very clear. You're neutral in politics. You're only an historian, whether you like it or not. So just to to wrap up real quick about the Gitlow case. So the reason why the Gitlow case, and remember he's being persecuted, or sorry, prosecuted in New York, because he publishes a paper which describes the Communist Manifesto, but he's not sort of advocating for immediate communist revolution. He's uh, speaking more of a long term, and you're allowed to make, according to the First Amendment, the interpretation of the First Amendment, you can talk about future actions, you just can't have an immediate clear and present danger. But nevertheless, New York prosecutes Gitlow, and the question is whether or not the First Amendment applies to the state of New York. And this is not going to be the first time that the Supreme Court uh, recognizes that, yes, we're going to take the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment, and over time, give more examples, but this is the first time that the First Amendment is applied to a state. Uh, and this is this concept of incorporating. So now let's talk about what incorporation means. So it took a it, long time. I'm sorry? It took a long time from the 14th Amendment in 1868 to uh, Gitlow in 1920. So this is a very controversial subject, and I'm going to give some examples. So to understand incorporation, we have to go to the Civil War and the results of the Civil War. 
which is why when we talk about the 14th Amendment, that's the story of how the Bill of Rights gets applied through the 14th Amendment. So let me read to everybody from the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment is one of the post-Civil War amendments. The South loses, and this is the consequence. We're now able to amend the Constitution and try to fix some of these imperfections. So the 13th Amendment outlaws slavery, 14th Amendment, and we're realizing that the South, including the President Johnson, is trying to reimpose not through slavery, but reimpose black codes, which restricted, and other ways of continuing to suppress African Americans. So the 14th Amendment says that, and I'm going to read it to you, there are five sections. I'm going to read from the first section of the 14th Amendment. All persons born or naturalized in the United States, and you've talked about that in other evenings, right. uh, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States, skipping ahead, and this is the important sentence, and it's got three parts, three clauses, which are probably three of the most important clauses, as far as I'm concerned, in the entire Constitution, at least in the, the more recent amendments to the Constitution. So it says, second sentence of Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property with that due process of law. That's the due process clause. The other clause was the privileges and immunities clause, semicolon, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That's the equal protection clause. So right. just to repeat, it begins by saying, 14th Amendment, no state shall compare that with the First Amendment, which Congress shall not. So here where you're saying no state shall do the following, yep. deny privileges and immunities, deny life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or deny anyone of equal protection. So that's the 14th Amendment. And the reason why we're going to come back to John Bingham is he writes that 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. And his original goal was to take these rights in the Constitution, in the, in the original Ten Amendments, and apply these to the southern states. Once we win the war, he has his ability, he gets the opportunity to do that. All right, so let's go through more about how incorporation works. So we just read the 14th Amendment, and Ed, you're right to point out that the Gitlo case is, you know, 1920 time frame. And let me skip back, because I like to jump around. So I want to talk about John Marshall. And John Marshall is the most important, uh, and, and I can definitely quantify this, he was the longest-serving Chief Justice. And the John Marshall is credited as a Federalist with uh, establishing a lot of the very important opinions in early years of American history. And the case I want to talk about real quick is Batten versus City of Baltimore. B-A-T-T-O-N versus City of Baltimore is 1833. And uh, Marshall is still alive in 1833. He becomes a Chief Justice in 1801, so he's been on the bench now for 32 years. He dies in 1835. So this is a case where a resident who owns a, a, a wharf, so you know, this is along the coast, and it's a profitable business because it's along the sea harbor. Problem was that the city of Baltimore is dredging and they're doing construction and all kinds of sediment gets deposited in front of the wharf. And this fellow Batten tries to sue to say, listen, you're taking away the value of my property. And he tries to sue under the Fifth Amendment for taking property without just compensation. And he wins at the state level, but there's an appeal, and the case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court on whether or not the state of Maryland can get away, or here at the city of Baltimore can get away with, uh, do they have to compensate somebody for, uh, under the Fifth Amendment, because um, he's claiming that he's being deprived of his property without due process and just compensation. So the case goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Marshall writes the decision, and the question is, do the Bill of Rights, does the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution apply to states or to cities? And this is what Madison 
sorry, this is about martial rights. Martial rights, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, he says that the amendments, meaning the Bill of Rights, <coughs> contain no exception indicating an intention to apply them to the state governments. This court cannot so apply them. So John Marshall, the very famous Supreme Court Justice appointed by George Washington, realizes that no, the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments, do not apply to states. So the city of Baltimore is allowed to violate and deny somebody their property without giving them compensation. So this is an example of how the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. But, uh, based yeah. only on those grounds, not not based on the other grounds that we know of today, which is eminent domain. So eminent domain applies to the federal government, and then through the 14th Amendment, which we're going to get to this idea of incorporation. So let me tee up because I didn't do a good job of describing it. So what is incorporation? Incorporation means now that we have that 14th Amendment, Section 1, the Due Process Clause, the courts have interpreted that due process means that um, you are entitled to due process. What is due process? And the courts, among other things, have said, and we'll go through more examples, that due process means that the First Amendment gives due process to you. The government, the Congress can't take away your right to petition or to have freedom of religion. So because now the states are subject to, to the due process clause, that due process clause includes within it the first ten amendments or the first eight amendments of the Constitution through the Bill of Rights. Sure. So we're going to give more examples to have it make sense. So, and before I give more examples, I want to just throw out some more interesting tidbits about Marshall. So I said he's the longest, ju longest serving justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, I also we talked about in other evenings the X Y Z affair. So this is so I don't bore people with too much legal um, jargon. Uh, so this is historical jargon. So. There was the XYZ affair when Adams was the president, and we almost went to war during the Adams administration because France was seizing American ships, and we weren't. Uh, this had to do with Hamilton, and the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists disagreed over what we should do with France. But there was this famous XYZ affair, and when this, the background is that three American ambassadors went over to France to try to negotiate a treaty with France, and the French asked for bribes, and the three American ambassadors went back home. So I'm just going to throw out to you that the Marshal was one of the three ambassadors that goes to France during the XYZ affair, and this is before he gets appointed Chief Justice, and uh, the other two members of that of that group of ambassadors was Jerry and Pinckney. And last week we talked about um, Jerry, who was a senator from Massachusetts. So just interestingly that Marshall and Jerry and Pinckney were the three American ambassadors who go to, who go to France with the XYZ affair. So that's a little bit of an aside. about freedom of the press and they probably the, the court probably the went press, too right? to yourself when you're arrested. 
Right. So these are criminal protections in the Fourth and Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, right? The right, right against self-incrimination. I'll take the fifth. Right. Gideon versus Rainwright. What is Gideon versus Rainwright? There's a movie, Gideon's Trumpet. Right. I forgot what that was. I, right to counsel. Okay. So these are important. The Matt versus Ohio is the exclusionary rule that if the police violate your rights, then the evidence that they seize in violation of the Fourth Amendment can't be used against you. So these important cases all flow from yeah. applying the Bill of Rights to the states because yeah. before. But as Justice Car- could violate the Bill of Rights. So but as Justice Cardozo said, just because the constable blundered doesn't mean that the thief should go free. And that's sort of a, a more recent kind of an interpretation about yep. how strictly and how yep. uh, you know how 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 strict and, and how uh, punitive should we be when the police violate your rights? Should an innocent person, or really should a guilty person go right, free? Right. And, and that's, that's that's something we can talk about another night. Which yep. doesn't apply to attorneys when they blunder yep, and yep. O.J. Simpson goes free. But Justice Cardozo was a very uh, well-respected guy. Oh. So let's do that another night. Okay. Yep, yep, that's fine. Exclusionary rule. That's there are fine. different opinions on the exclusionary rule, but that's Matt versus Ohio. So I'm mentioning those because I have to understand these judges and how they came up with this concept of incorporation. And again, so everybody follows, we're talking about taking the Bill of Rights and applying them to the states. Because, you know, now I'll give you a statistic that prior to the, uh, around 1900, there were only about a dozen or so cases where the Bill of Rights were even litigated because the federal government wasn't violating rights. And going back to Madison for a second, Madison, one of the reasons he didn't think we needed a Bill of Rights, he wasn't worried about the federal government violating rights. He was more worried about the states violating rights. And I'm going to make the point tonight that um, we saw that to be true, that during the Civil, prior to the Civil War, it was the southern states that were violating lots of rights, including the rights of northerners. And I'll give an example real quick. Um, So I mentioned earlier that um, abolitionists, and coincidentally, one one of you mentioned, again, you mentioned William Lloyd Garrison, who was an abolitionist, and he published a paper called The Liberator. And uh, a lot of the abolitionists in the North would send their newspapers and their articles into the South uh, to try to forward the, the idea of abolitionism. And the southern states started passing laws, and I'll give two of the reasons. There was a slave rebellion. The fellow's name was Nat Turner, uh, and he led a slave revolt in 1831. There was also John Brown, who was not a slave. He, he led in 1859 a raid on Harper's Ferry. So a lot of the southern states were really concerned in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s um, about this tension between the north and the south. And the southern states, and I'll give some examples, started passing laws, which today you and I would look and say, there's no way that that could be constitutional. But remember, prior to the 14th Amendment, states could do what they wanted because they weren't subject to the protections of the Bill of Rights. So let me read you some, some of these laws. So this is the 1830s, 40s time frame. North Carolina passes a law which says that uh, it's illegal uh, to pass, a, to publish uh, any publication which has a, quote, tendency to incite insurrection or resistance among slaves. Alabama passes a law which provides a death penalty for any person who distributes or publishes seditious papers. Think about that for a second. Alabama makes it the death penalty, if you're an abolitionist, to distribute a paper, which, there's the language, which tends to produce conspiracy or insurrection among slaves or colored populations. 1836, Virginia passes a law, and I'll, pa- I'll post some of these statutes. So it's a statute providing for imprisonment of, anti- of any anti-slavery society member who enters the state and advocates abolition. So just to advocate abolition yep. is uh, by circulating banned books. This is what Virginia is doing in 1836. So the tentacles of slavery are affecting the rights of northerners. So this is trying to, trying to lay the foundation about how once we incorporate through the 14th Amendment, now the First Amendment will apply to the states. 
right, so well, how about me having to resign because I was circulating the conversion to charter uh, pamphlet in support of the yes vote? <laughs> that hey man, come on, that's uh, that's sedition, isn't it? You, it certainly is. You are a seditious character. Yes. Jeez, see, I get no sympathy from two attorneys. Seditious character. You guys to go on record here. Yep. You guys could give a hoot. So, because the First Amendment has been incorporated, and we'll get into more examples, states are not allowed to violate your freedom of speech, man. So, let yep. me go through the list of the Bill of Rights. Well, they're, being, they're paying a terrible price because we're on Blink Radio. So, the First Amendment, all of the protections in the First Amendment have been incorporated, meaning that the courts have decided on a case-by-case basis that through the 14th Amendment, the First Amendment applies to the states. So, all of the provisions of the First Amendment. Second Amendment, this is more recent. So, Ed, you want to talk real quickly about the case? So give us a name, uh, incorporating the Second Amendment so that states cannot violate the Second Amendment right to bear arms. Is that Heller? Is that the Washington, D.C. case, Heller? Right. So Heller follows the the McDonald versus right, Chicago in case Chicago. in 2010, which was a split court on a five to four basis. Decide that they're going to incorporate, meaning they're going to take the First Amendment, I'm sorry, the Second Amendment right to bear arms. They're going to apply that to the states through the Due Process Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. So that's the McDonald case and the Heller case recognize that um, you know the, the Second Amendment rights now apply to the states. So interestingly, and I told you earlier that not all of the rights in the Bill of Rights have been applied to the states. So what is the Third Amendment? Is that about quartering troops? Right. We started by talking about quartering troops. So the court has not yet incorporated the Third Amendment. Well, so it... from the standpoint of, and I, I think if the case were ever brought, I have every reason to think that the Supreme Court would incorporate the right. Third Amendment. It just hasn't had the chance to, or the need to do it yet. That's but fine. Technically speaking right now, the Third Amendment has not been incorporated. So the state of Florida, in theory, right, because, again, it hasn't been done yet. Uh, there is no prohibition on the state of Florida quartering troops in your house, your house because the Third Amendment has not been applied yet to states. It only applies to the federal government. Well, Manny has a big uh, estate on the ocean here, so it's ready to be occupied. Oh, that is so corny. Oh, my God. Look, Fourth just because I say a joke, it doesn't In mean time of peace may be quartered in any house Jeez. without the consent of the owner. Oh, my God. God, that was just Third Amendment lame. Has not applied yet to the to the states has not been incorporated. Fourth Amendment. And what is the Fourth Amendment? I'll just simplify. These are rights of criminally accused, and the Fourth Amendment is that you need a warrant. So the Fourth Amendment has been fully incorporated, meaning it's been applied to the states through some of the famous cases we talked about, Map versus Ohio, and there are a bunch of others that incorporate the Fourth Amendment. Uh, Fifth Amendment. Now, interestingly, there is a section of the Fifth Amendment which has not been incorporated to the states yet, and that has to do with grand jury indictments. The states do not have to indict you before a grand jury because the Fifth Amendment has not yet been incorporated. And we'll get more examples, but let me explain what the theory is. So Justice Black, this is the U.S. Supreme Court Justice, he believed in what he called the total incorporation theory. And you like this terminology. His language was that he thought the Bill of Rights was interpreted and was was going to be applied lock, stock, and barrel. He also uses the expression jot for jot. So he thinks that once the 14th Amendment was adopted with the Due Process Clause, all of the Bill of Rights applies automatically to the states. So he came up with this theory of total incorporation. And uh, for some of the New Testament readers out there, um, isn't there in the, in the New Testament this idea of a, of a jot and a tittle? Yes, uh, Jesus said that he did not come to overthrow the law, but to, or not even a jot or a tittle, but to comply with the law, to fulfill it. So Black 
uses that language about jot yeah. for jot. Uh, so a jot is a, a small amount or a right. big amount. Uh, you know, lock, stock, and barrel. He wants all of the Bill of Rights to apply. And let me sort of quote what he says. So Black supported this idea of total incorporation, which is the idea that every provision of the Bill of Rights applies to the states. And, of course, his argument is that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment protects life, liberty, and property. And here's the, ca- the, the catch, that if it protects life, liberty, and property, what is the most complete expression of American liberty? It's the Bill of Rights. So the Bill of Rights yeah. comes through uh, to apply to the states through the Due Process Clause. Uh, so this was his idea that all of the Bill of Rights gets incorporated by the 14th Amendment. Not all the justices agree. Justice Frankfurter, in the 1952 case of uh, Rocky, I don't know how to pronounce it, R-O-C-H-I-N, Rokin versus California, he disagrees with Black. And Frankfurter's position is, no, only those rights which are fundamental to fairness or fundamental to oh, ordered liberty should be applied. And for Frankfurter, the idea is it should shock the conscience. Only if a right, if the state violates a right that shocks the conscience, does that provision of the Bill of Rights apply All to states. Right. And I'll point out to you that sometimes you get three different opinions. Right. So Justice Brennan, more recent, he came up with this idea not of total incorporation, which was Justice Black, but selective incorporation. So Brennan's view was, um, again, if it's fundamental, then it does get incorporated and it does apply to the states through the 14th Amendment. And basically what's happened is backdoor incorporation. So on a case-by-case basis, yep. the vast majority of the provisions in the Bill right. of Rights have been applied to the states. Well, and here, For example, if you don't get um, indicted by a grand jury, how do, you, how do, how do states uh, indict people without a grand jury? Just or information? By indictment or by, uh, by, by information. Right, so Florida, for smaller offenses, you can be not indicted okay. by a grand jury, but it's filing of, of an indictment uh, before the judge uh, charging documents. Okay, but right, it's so usually right for smaller jury. offenses. Low, smaller offenses. So that's okay. the Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment right to jury by, by a grand jury, right to indictment, rather, by a grand right. jury, has not been incorporated. Let me give you some other examples, since you're sort of asking. Um, the right to a jury selected from residents of your state has not been incorporated. Has okay. not been incorporated. Uh, the Seventh Amendment jury trial, right? So you've got a right to a federal jury trial, because the Seventh Amendment says if it's over $20, you have a right to a jury trial. But that has not been incorporated on the state. So in Florida, um, you don't have to have a right to a jury trial over a certain dollar. That's up to the states to decide if you're going to get a jury trial or not, but that has not been incorporated. Okay. The Eighth Amendment excessive fines has not been incorporated. So there are a handful of them that still haven't been incorporated yet. So we're talking about Black says, uh, Justice Black, that uh, the entire, the jot for jot, block, stock, and barrel, all of the Bill of Rights should be incorporated, but the judges didn't agree with Black. Uh, Frankfurter said only that if it's fundamental to fairness and ordered liberty, and then Brennan is selective incorporation, and over time, that's what we've done. We've selectively, uh, over time, taken most of the Bill of Rights and applied it to the states. Let me quote now from Benjamin Cardozo, another Supreme Court justice, and he summarizes in 1937 that he thinks what's going to happen is selective incorporation uh, of those rights that are so rooted in the traditions and conscience of our people to be ranked as fundamental. And let me give some other alternative positions. Uh, So Judge Bork, in his book, which is called The Tempting of America, um, he did not agree necessarily that the 14th Amendment would apply to the states, because he's more of a states' rights guy. And when the Bill of Rights was written, there was no intent to apply it to the states. In fact, and I mentioned this last week, I believe, Madison had proposed, and here's some some numbers for everybody, Madison had proposed a total of, I want to get this right, 19 amendments, and the House of Representatives went it down to 12, I'm sorry, from 19 
16, they reduce it to 17, and then the Senate reduced it to 12. And of those 12, only 10 of them made it through to become the Bill of Rights. So one of the amendments that Madison had proposed to become in the Bill of Rights would have limited states, and let me quote it to you. Uh, so Madison wanted a provision in the Bill of Rights to say, and I'm quoting it, that no state shall violate equal right of conscience, freedom of the press, or trial by jury in criminal cases. And he thought this proposal was the most valuable of all of the proposals on that list to make the Bill of Rights, but the Senate rejected it because they didn't want the federal government sort of uh, stepping on the toes yeah, of the Yeah, telling the states what so to do. It's not until the Civil War that you start being able to apply these new rights and restrict the states. In fact, this is a little bit of the, the specifics. Uh, what was the first amendment that applies to the states, right? The 11th, right? No. The, the, first, the first 10 amendments of the Bill of Rights. It's for us individuals. They're all dealing basically with individuals on the Eighth Amendment, uh, you know, cruel and unusual punishment, Ninth Amendment is... Uh, I think it's the 11th Amendment, which is that the laws determined by the Supreme Court or by the federal government don't necessarily apply to citizens of the respective states. It only applies to the, the litigant in the actual case, correct? So, so what I'm looking for, Manny, is when you go through the list of the Bill of Rights, the, the first one by its title and by its terminology to directly apply to, the, to a state is the 13th Amendment, which outlaws slavery. Right. And then the 14th Amendment, which I read to you, which says no state shall violate due process, equal protection, or the privileges and immunities. So, again, I'm making the point that the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. So where we well, think okay, can I read out the 11th and you tell me why I misinterpreted it? Uh, the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or in equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States, the one of the United States by citizens of another state or by citizens or subjects of any foreign state. That means no state can be sued by another, state. by an out of state, no, by an out of state citizen or by a foreign country. Okay, so but I so then uh, he, uh, so my statement is somewhat somewhat correct because it applies from one state to another. No, it's from one individual to to, to a state to another state. A citizen uh, of an out of state citizen suing a state. So yeah, somebody from Georgia coming and suing Florida. Is that does that still apply in the law? Absolutely correct. Yeah. We should do a whole another evening on the Eleventh Amendment, and I've uh, written briefs about the Eleventh Amendment because the concept is what's called sovereign immunity, and it's intended to protect the states from being sued by people from other states in federal court. If you want to sue a state, you have to sue them in their own state court, um, and it gets, there are all kinds of exceptions to the Eleventh Amendment. And cool. it's an area where okay. the courts have gone back and forth like a pendulum, and uh, with different interpretations of the Eleventh Amendment, but. Um, the, the, the small point I was trying to make is that the first time that you have an amendment which directly applies to a state is the 13th Amendment, which outlaws slavery, and the 14th Amendment, which is really the subject of today's conversation in a roundabout way. So getting back to the theory of incorporation, we talked about black with total incorporation, Justice Black. We talked about Justice Frankfurter, who disagreed and said, no, we'll do incorporation a little bit at a time if it violates or shocks the conscience. And then Brennan, this idea of selective incorporation, which is where we are now, that we've incorporated most, but not all of the Bill of Rights to apply to the states. And I was mentioning Judge Bork, who is a conservative, very conservative judge, not on the Supreme Court. And let me just read from what he says. He says, we know there is no evidence, I'm quoting, that the ratifiers imagined that they were handling ultimate or hand handing ultimate governance to the courts. We know that a constitutional revolution of that magnitude would have provoked widespread and heated, to put it mildly, discussion. So 
but he's pointing out that he doesn't like this idea of courts deciding what rights apply to the states. He wants, if you want to apply rights, and Ed can talk about this, you apply it from the perspective of Bork uh, through amending the Constitution, not the right. courts interpreting the due process clause to apply rights. So that's where Bork is coming from. Um, so before I move away from those three judges and, and Bork, who is a, also a judge, I want to talk about um, John Hart Eli, because I went to the University of Miami for law school, and he was a professor at Miami until he passed away. I never had him, but uh, one of the things that uh, people like to do to determine how influential has a, has a legal opinion be, been is, is to sort of uh, check how many times it's been cited. And John Hart I, Eli, and I'm not sure if most listeners will, will know this name, is one of the most respected, why do I say respected? Because his, his book and his writings have been widely adopted and widely uh, you know, cited and referred to in judicial opinions and what are called law review articles. So what is the big deal with John Hart, Eli? And the quick answer is he writes a book called Democracy and Distrust. And he comes up with this concept, because this is a debate when judges get, when they go before the, the, you know, the Senate, when they're being confirmed, when justices are going for confirmation. These are kind of the questions that get asked. Do you believe in total incorporation? Do you believe in selective incorporation? Do you agree with Bork that the court shouldn't be making these decisions? So what does Eli have to say about constitutional interpretation? And I'll point out to you that Ed Meese, who was an attorney general under under Reagan also did not believe in these incorporation concepts. He was critical of the courts making these kind of decisions. So what does Eli say? And I'm a big fan of Professor Eli. And he writes that uh, judges really shouldn't be making these decisions either. He wants judges to focus on the democratic process. And his terminology, which is a mouthful, uh, he's referring to, let's see if I can get it right, uh, he's referring to the importance of and I don't have the quote I wanted handy, but uh, he wanted to make sure that if the judges are going to interpret rights, he wants rights that protect the political process of making sure that disfavored minorities have access to the political process. So he's big on voting rights and on free speech, right? So if you're going to be passing a law that impacts the ability of voters or free speech, that's where he thinks the judges should be activists, not when it comes to smaller issues like if you get a jury trial, if it's $20 or not. He's more interested in systemic issues of the political process, protecting the political process and protecting minorities. And when I say minorities, I'm not talking about necessarily racial minorities or religious minorities. He's talking about minorities from a political perspective, because the political minority today, uh, or the political majority today, may be in the minority next time around. So his, his focus is on not not incorporating individual rights, but protecting the systemic rights that make the political process work smoothly. So that's uh, one of his professors that I'm a big fan of. That's John Hart, Eli. Um, well, another case I want to talk about, and this really gets into the weeds, and then we'll do more history, uh, but there's a very famous, what well, we're talking about cases. There's a very famous footnote, and, and this is not a question for Manny, this is an Ed question. If you dust off from your 1930s, Ed, um, and this is a very very important U.S. Supreme Court case, and it's, a very, it's the, probably the most important footnote, and we could talk about why footnotes sometimes are important in Supreme Court cases. And how much time do we have left? I'm looking at the clock. All right, we're almost at 8 o'clock. But um, real quickly, I won't ask you the question, I'll just give the answer. So there's a very important case called the United States versus Caroline Products in 1938. And this case, by written by Justice Harlan Stone, uh, establishes, and we'll do this in more detail in other evenings, this idea in footnote four of the Caroline Products case um, of the standards that are applied now for constitutional tests. And it's the difference between the rational basis test and the strict scrutiny test. And we'll, we'll maybe do that another evening. Um, so how do we want to end? And I promised you that oh. I would... All right, I'll end with one quote from the Constitution. Yeah. Yeah. 
Article 1 of the Constitution, Section 1. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. It does not say in the courts of the United States. It does not say in the administrative agencies of the United States or even in the president of the United States. It says in the Congress. Further affiant sayeth not. There you go. So they can't argue with that. That's uh, right out of the Constitution. So the, the last thing I wanted to end with is Bingham. So Bingham, who was this member of a Republican in the 1850s time frame, who led the trial of Andrew Johnson, who uh, prosecuted the, the, the individuals who were involved in assassinating Lincoln. Uh, so what was his role? And the answer is he wrote the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment made possible as interpreted by the courts, which is a little controversial, although today I don't think it's as controversial, to take the Bill of Rights and apply them to the states. And we give examples of how the states, um, Madison was worried about the states. He wasn't worried about the federal government. He was worried about the states violating rights. And it's because the courts have done that that most of the Bill of Rights now applies. And let me give you the quote about, um, this is Bingham as described by Hugo Black. So Hugo Black is the judge we talked about who came up with this idea of incorporation, total incorporation. And Hugo Black basically says uh, that uh, we should treat Bingham, who wrote the 14th Amendment, as the father of, uh, of the incorporation, as the father of the 14th Amendment. And I think if you're going to give credit to Madison as the, the father of the Bill of Rights and the father of the Constitution, I think we have to give Bingham a lot of credit uh, for the 14th Amendment because of the broad language and as it's been interpreted. I'm a fan of it. Uh, we, we now have all these protections, uh, and it's not the federal government necessarily that's in, necessarily you know, violating your right to freedom of religion. It, you know, I'm using that one example, but it could be the states uh, that can be uh, creating mischief, but not anymore because of the incorporation doctrine. And yep. now we've uh, completed the circle talking about uh, the Bill of Rights, the 14th Amendment, and the Constitution, how well, they all fit together. Yeah, you know, a Adam, I don't like Hugo Black because he was a Klan lawyer in uh, Alabama, but I, I have to agree with his approach, because if you're going to incorporate, you might as well incorporate the whole thing. And if you don't incorporate the whole thing, then you're giving more latitude for judicial discretion. And, you know, like Frank Furter, who's a great guy, you know, I, I like him a lot, but he says if it shocks the conscience. And so he's giving himself a lot of discretion. And oh, other what judges. Shocks the conscience. What does that even mean? Right. Yeah. Whose conscience too? So I would rather have Black's view of you know. Let's just incorporate Guys, everything. Remember that attorneys don't have a conscience. Oh, that's right. That's another problem. So I would rather have Black's view that you're just in, let's incorporate everything, than uh, Frankfurter and others, Brennan picking and choosing what they think should be incorporated. So that's this is where the controversy lies. And here's one little footnote, which is really in the weeds. But uh, Justice Thomas right. on our U.S. Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, he doesn't believe in incorporating through the 14th Amendment the Due Process Clause. He prefers to incorporate, and this really gets, as I said, in the weeds, through the Privileges and Immunities Clause. And another <laughs> night we'll talk about the difference yep. between the Privileges and Immunities Clause and what are called the Slaughterhouse Cases. Yep. And this is, uh, again, Civil Rights Era kind of uh, cases. Uh, when I say Civil Rights, post-Civil post -civil War cases. Right. Uh, but there's a lot to talk about, but I think we've done enough legal and we'll do more of the history next week. All right. Well, thank you thank very much. You. This is the Statues and Stories Hour with Adam Levinson. Stay free, my friends. We'll be back next week, and we'll move in time. We'll be, I don't know, I guess, back to the future, WSQF Blink Radio Time. Take Thanks, care. everybody. Thank you.